0: Welcome to Zooming In, a project of the Unpopulist. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. Today we have our editors' roundtable, where I'm joined by Shikha Dalmia and Akiva Malamet to talk about liberalism and the left.
1: Hi, Aaron. So thank you for doing this. So this is our, I don't know. This is a second or a third roundtable, and these are getting uh, to be more and more fun. And, uh, you know, it's a big topic that you have uh, laid out here. Um, But let me just sort of like back up and uh, sort of state what the purpose of the unpopulist and, you know, to some extent this podcast is, which is that, you know, I think it's fair to say that all three of us have sort of occupied more of the center right than the center left position In our years as public intellectuals, Uh, Akiva's are far shorter than mine uh, because I'm 500 years older than him. But, uh, you know, and what we are trying to do now is, um, at least for me, and I don't want to speak for you guys, I mean, for me, I kind of realized at some point that my understanding of the left was very much mediated by this universe that I inhabited. And um, and the biases of this universe uh, kind of crept into my mental categories. And what at least the purpose of the unpopulist is what I call is to rethink all that and create a new common ground classical liberalism, which is not uh, uncritically pro-right and reflexively anti-left. Uh, we want to understand the left on its own terms and evaluate its relationship with liberalism. Um, I think um, our side has suffered from its fusion with the right for the last half a century or more. And we need to rethink this fusion and build bridges with the left where we can. But this can't, of course, be done completely uncritically. And at this stage, uh, you know, Erin, uh, you've had a fair number of. Critical race theorists and leftist progressives on your podcast. And at the Unpopulist, we've invited several of them to write for us. And so I think we have like sort of a baseline of understanding to begin to critique the left free of the noise that the hysterical right is injecting into our understanding of the left in America right now and the world. Um, And so, you know, the question is once you. Uh, get rid of all the noise that Chris Rufo is making and, you know, other uh, right-wing anti-woke cultural warriors are making, what do you, what do we make of it? And the one thing, and there is so much I agree on. I mean, it's been kind of like eye opening um, to uh, read the left in its own words and fully understand its critique of racism in America. Um, You know, I didn't, come to it till about four or five years ago but now i'm fully persuaded that there is such a thing as structural racism that you know just because individual racism we've made a great deal of progress in ameliorating doesn't mean that structures of racism don't exist uh and there is such a thing as white privilege although i don't like the term i li- you know i much prefer the term dominant privilege because it's not a racial thing it's a you know it's a question of dominant group uh, privilege um And I've been persuaded by much of what the left has said, yet there are disagreements, and we'll get into a little bit of that uh, in this podcast, but let me just throw out the one disagreement that I have with the left and its framing. And what comes through to me is a certain um, reflexive anti-Americanism. And in this, it's very interesting Uh, You know, this anti-Americanism has always been there in the left, but now there are plenty of uh, right-wing warriors who have their own form of anti-Americanism and the two take somewhat different forms. So, you know, we ran this piece by Jonathan Marks yesterday on, uh, you know, pointing out how Uh, overblown uh, the right-wing concern about uh, DEI on college campuses is. And in the course of writing this piece, one of the things he mentions is that Chris Rufo claims that uh, American college campuses are more oppressive than uh, Soviet communism. And he thinks that Hungary is uh, actually uh, more of a paragon of like freedom and free speech than the United States is. Now, this is kind of like a pretty shocking statement coming from the right. Um, and quite a departure from its exceptionalism, that it, you know, America is an exceptional country and it's exceptionally good uh, and what have you, that the right used to, uh, you know, has, has been believing, and a lot of portions of the right still do. But then you see the opposite on the left, which is that um you know america is somehow a more oppressive country than other countries and um you know in your podcast with Jillian uh, Van Stetter of the ACLU which was you know again a really really eye opening podcast about the plight of trans people in the country in the country she mentions you know that there is no difference between uh the united states and, um, and you know, some of the more oppressive regimes that we have seen in the past. And so there is, you know, there is this sort of like this horseshoe convergence between the left and the right going on. Um, And the question is, I mean, I can, uh, and both the the left, uh, frankly, the right mystifies me a little bit more than the left. But I think one of the reasons that there is this anti-Americanism on the left is that they are suspicious of American capitalism. They see uh, American capitalism as the source of oppression in this country. They see uh, American capitalism, uh, you know, as leading to chattel slavery, which is a unique American institution, right? I mean, there was domestic slavery and there were other kinds of slavery, but chattel slavery was a very American institution in that, you know, you were breaking up black families and selling them in sort of like this, you know, market transaction. And I think, um, you know, although it's sort of understandable, but it is also this anti-Americanism because of American capitalism is also a huge misunderstanding on the part of the left. And so, um, I think that's you know, that's one area in which I disagree with the with with them because capitalism is not the same as markets,
0: so I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in there, and I want to I guess add my own gloss to it and and maybe push back on on a bit of it. Um so first, you mentioned that we kind of came from this center right perspective. and I don't. I don't think that really accurately describes me because I think one of the things that – one of my like intellectual evolutions over the last 10 years is is recognizing how, well, a lot of the people who were kind of on my side, like making the same sorts of pro-liberty, pro-liberalism arguments were part of – thought of themselves as being on the right. I really, really don't, um, and I tend to – My overlap with the left is in a lot of the the fundamental values of cosmopolitanism, strongly anti-hierarchy, anti-domination, seeing usually tradition and ideas of what is like natural hierarchies as simply like self-serving methods of control that – Generally, kind of the values that motivate the people on the left are much more, I think, amenable to my own personal values than those that motivate people on the right. Um, where, where I disagree with the left is in how we how we bring those values into being, how we realize those in the society and the politics and the economy around us. Because I think the real – blind spot of the left is in seeing there is there is domination and oppression in society right now. There are groups that are wildly marginalized that are being crushed under the boot of either unjust social pressures or coercive physical pressures, and the way that we solve this and all the other problems we've identified is to strengthen the state and have it intervene more on the behalf of our favored groups and to stop intervening on the behalf of the groups in power the the dominant culture the people on the right so on and so forth. And I can understand the that thought process. You know, I can see like there is this this incredibly powerful tool that has not just a huge amount of resources it can bring to its disposal, but it can also exercise coercive force to bring this about through, through law, through regulation, and so on. Like That is appealing, but I think the history of the state is that almost invariably, powerful states end up being tools of oppression as opposed to tools of liberation. And so kind of recognizing that and reconceptualizing the state as as force as opposed to – I mean, not perhaps necessary force. Like maybe there are problems that it's the only thing that can solve, but it's not just kind of all of us getting together and making collaborative decisions. It's rather an institution with its own interests and a tremendous amount of power that can do a tremendous amount of harm. That said, I think that on – The anti-Americanism, there has always been two things going on. The first is that American culture is incredibly pro-American in often a way that blinds it to just how awful the American government has been in all sorts of ways, and how much like real injustice there has been in our history, our foreign policy, our treatment of marginalized groups and racial groups. So there's like a, a whitewashing that happens. And that needs to be corrected. And you can sometimes, I think there's a temptation to overcorrect or to see, you know, and that can turn into we're much worse than everybody else, which as you pointed out, I think rightly, there are plenty of places that are as oppressive as America can be. And I, I liked, I really liked Jillian's point in that podcast about how that The authoritarianism is just unevenly distributed in the US. So there are some people who feel very free. There are other people who feel incredibly crushed by the government. Um, And that – so recognizing that but not swinging too far in the other direction and there's a temptation to do that. The other thing that I would say is I think on the capitalism, this is something I've increasingly noticed over the last several years is that capitalism means different things to different people. The the term is is not consistent in its usage. And and so those of us on the classical liberal side tend to use capitalism as simply a synonym for free markets. But people on the far left don't tend to use it that way. They tend to use it as the system of concentrated power, large corporations often using government in rent-seeking ways— um, the power of bosses as a result of an inability of workers to kind of have options to move, so on and so forth. So they see it as like a system of domination and not simply free markets. And so a lot of the times when people say they oppose capitalism, that's what they mean. And they don't mean just free exchange between private individuals in a non-coercive way. And part of the reason that I think this – so I'll, I'll note like there were studies – there surveys done of college students – a few years ago that showed that they had a very low opinion of capitalism but a very high opinion of entrepreneurship. And lots of people were confused about that. but if you recognize that they basically capitalism means something different than simply free markets and and free enterprise, then it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I also think that this history that we've talked about plays a big role in this because one of the things you notice is that a lot of people who ended up very far left or ended up actually like in the early to mid 20th century becoming communists their attraction to those ideas initially was not i don't like free markets free enterprise and capitalism the reason that they ended up in those circles is because they were pro civil rights they were anti racial oppression they were in favor of women's liberation they opposed fascism reasons like that and at the time the people who were talking about that kind of stuff saying we need to end racial hierarchies and so on. Also, they happened to be the communists and the far left people. And the people who were talking about capitalism and free enterprise and free markets were also the ones who were the most opposed to the civil rights movement. And you can see this play out in in anti-communism. I just recorded an episode with Kristen Dumais that will be out um, next week as we were recording this right now where one of the things we talked about was anti-communism was rife among American evangelical movements, but simply what they meant by communism was basically the civil rights movement. And so if you cared about civil rights, you started hanging out with leftists, and then you also happened to pick up opposition to markets. But it wasn't the opposition to markets that led a lot of these people into the left in the first place, and the opposition to capitalism was often driven by... These people who want to keep me at the bottom of the hierarchy, who want to keep Jim Crow, who want to keep patriarchy, are also talking capitalism. So obviously capitalism must be involved in that stuff too. And so I think a lot of it is was driven by really poor alliance choices and rhetorical choices. Um, and And I think if we recognize that – gives us an in to have the kind of richer conversations with people on the left about actually markets are, it's not government that's the tool of liberation that you're seeking. It is it is radically free markets have historically and continue to be this tool. And so please don't smother them, but instead embrace them so that we can smash these these hierarchies that are that markets exist kind of in opposition to.
1: Yeah. Um so eloquent um Erin uh, um I mean this I mean I almost like 100% agree with you but I'm still going to find something to push back on over here. Uh two very quick points because Akiva has a lot to say on all of this. I know. Uh, one, your point about the uneven distribution of authoritarianism in this country. I mean, that's like indubitably true, right? I mean, uh, you know, that's that great quote by Samuel Jen- Johnson. Uh, why do you hear the biggest yelps of uh, about freedom from the biggest slave drivers in this country? Something to that effect. And uh, I mean, that's like, you know, that kind of summarizes that you know, that point about the uneven, I mean, America has been an authoritarian country and worse for blacks, right? No doubt about that. But still, the one small point I would make is one of the uh, mistakes that the left makes is that it thinks that the default condition of humanity is freedom and not authoritarianism. Whereas the reality is that every social order is in some ways totalitarian it perpetuates itself by, you know, uh, all kinds of uh, very complex social uh, mechanisms, worldviews, ideologies, taboos, you know, what have you, to control the mind of the people so that they will, you know, so that they will believe in that social order. Where that uh, uh, you know, where that doesn't happen is in liberal societies. You know, that's where, you know, because of all the sort of the liberal norms, free speech, free thought, conscience, freedom of conscience, and what have you, you get tools to actually question that totalitarianism. So if you compare other countries with the United States, you know, their record on human rights... Uh, At least in the modern period, uh, you know, in the last hundred years, is far, far worse than the United States. And so, if they took a somewhat, if the left took a somewhat non-parochial, broader international perspective, I think they it would allow them to see some of the progress that has been made in the United States. That's point number one. And the other very brief point I'll make is, I think there is a lot to what you said about, you know, the uh, sort of the whole notion of capitalism and markets getting conflated, uh, you know, with the right and in the in the sense that and then, you know, civil rights folks, Martin Luther King was just a commie, even though he was actually, um, you know, fighting for some very American uh, values and principles. But I think we cannot underestimate the role that suspicion of the profit motive plays in the antipathy to markets, not just on the on the left, but actually also on the right.
2: So I liked a lot of what Aaron had to say. Um, I agree with a lot of his response to Shika, And like Aaron, I came to a classical liberal point of view from uh, basically adopting many what I consider be left-wing values, values about liberty, equality, opposing social control, opposing hierarchy and domination. I actually started out my political journey on the right, and my move towards being a liberal was very much about adopting certain values and points of view that I hadn't previously appreciated. I think there is a danger in, in thinking about... Uh, left-wing opposition to liberalism merely as a function of either the coalitions that they perceive liberalism as a part of, or a misunderstanding of terms. So I don't think that the divide between liberals and the left—and we should acknowledge that the left is not a monolithic thing. It's a kind of vague sociological term for people with a lot of different and sometimes contradictory ideas, just like any political ideology— but like, I don't think that the only issue is that, you know, when the left thinks about capitalism, they think about corporations in bed with government. And when liberals think about capitalism, they think about free exchange. I think there are aspects of, well, even when you're talking about markets that the left is, people on the left are fundamentally suspicious of. They're suspicious of the idea of profit. They see it inherently as a form of exploitation. Um, they're suspicious of the idea of people having some, of the idea of anyone holding something privately because they see the idea of holding something privately as basically theft from the commons of humanity. And they think of property and of resources as something that ought to be held in common or perhaps can be more efficiently held in common. Obviously, it depends on the, on the leftist person you're talking to. Um, so there's a suspicion of holding capital and, and property in private hands to begin with. Um, And also, I mean, one of the defining features of the left, especially in comparison with liberalism, is an insistence on equality as the most important value. So I think of liberalism as a doctrine that tries to balance liberty and equality, and it sees both of these as important, but it sees them as a balancing act between these two values. And I think of the left as people who say that equality is much more important than liberty in a lot of cases, that liberty leads to exploitation. And if we don't have some kind of egalitarian distribution of not only material goods, but of social relationships and a variety of other ways that society is organized, that there's going to be a lot of problems. Um, and I think a lot of my differences with the left come with the fact that I'm willing to accept certain forms of inequality, particularly when they're achieved through re- properly free markets rather than capitalism and corporate rent-seeking. Um right. And I also think that I don't have a kind of ideal that all uh, property or social relations should be collectivized. I think that, they're, that holding uh, private property is a necessary tool for achieving both justice and um, efficient distribution of resources. Um, and I think that uh, that the gains that people make through the use of private property, through the use of, and through the acquisition of profit is in some, in many cases morally justified and is certainly on a utilitarian basis, um, a, a necessary requirement for any functioning society. I think what, um, also divides people on the left from those who defend markets is that Um, and from liberals in general, is that people on the left see markets as an inherently conservative kind of force. They're a force that reinforces hierarchy, that is about some people having stuff and other people not having stuff, about relations of exploitation and domination. And there are many people who are liberals who have fundamentally conservative views about why we need markets. They see markets as an upholder of privilege and of the justly the justly set out hierarchies based on race and 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 gender and so on, and they they actually see defending markets as part of the program of defending hierarchy. And so sometimes there is a genuine divide because some liberals don't believe in uh, believe in hierarchy rather than in equality than in true equality between people, um, and so that creates. Um, a divide as well. Now, as a liberal, I would say that the reason we should have markets is because they're liberatory, because they um, remove people from historical situations of exploitation and domination. But I recognize that not everyone who defends markets thinks like that, and that there are many people who see markets as a preserver of hierarchy. And so there are good reasons for people on the left to see people who defend markets as their enemies in terms of the values that they have in place. But obviously, this depends a lot on who we're talking about and what on their particular version of their ideology is. I think um, another important thing to look at is, and this is a complicated thing because it isn't, is, I think there are different versions of this depending on the ideology you hold. But I'm a big fan of Thomas Sowell's book, A Conflict of Visions, which is about how a lot of political divides are between what he calls the constrained and the unconstrained vision of human nature. And the constrained vision is, in some sense, small-c conservative. It sees people as self-interested to some significant degree. It has skepticism about human perfectibility and the degree to which humans can learn new things and morally improve. Um, It has skepticism about the degree to which we can live in a perfectible world, a world with less scarcity, a world with um, injustice. And the unconstrained vision believes in moral perfectibility and the ability to overcome all situations of injustice. And to some extent, I am more skeptical than some people on the left of the ability to live in a world that is truly bereft of scarcity, of injustice, of self, of self interest, of greed, of rent seeking. And of, and so I see the role of social institutions as balancing the inevitable features of humanity that will engage in exploitation and predation and so on. But I don't think we can ever live in a world where there is no exploitation or greed or self-interest or limits to our knowledge. And I think there are people on the left who really genuinely think that absent the structures of domination, that we would be able to live in a in a better world, in like a, you know, Star Trek is a great example of that kind of vision where everyone's living in harmony and, and nobody's poor and nobody has any stuff. Or, you know, John Lennon's Imagine is a kind of a a parody of this, but it does reflect a certain kind of idealism um, that many people on the left have about the possibilities for social reform that I simply don't, don't have. And so in that sense, I am more conservative than some people on the left, even though I don't think of my values as being fundamentally very different in the sense that I care about equality and non-domination and liberation.
1: Very quickly, I'll interject and say, uh, Akiva, I describe myself as a Burkean progressive, which is that I believe in and I agree with many of the social justice causes of the left, but I also believe in a certain amount of incrementalism and maintaining of the institutions of a liberal society. In that sense, actually, uh, Aaron, uh, you know your formulation about a radical case for uh, the emancipatory potential of markets and what have you, you know. I mean, it is radical in the end that you'll get to a much better place, but I really do believe in the incrementalism, you know, approach as minimizing the damage that we do on the way to our, uh, you know, on our way to a better, more socially just society.
0: Yeah. And I think you can kind of square that circle by saying that one of the things that I think attracts people on the left, but also on the right to state power is its immediacy. You know, so I have... I often have made the joke that you really – you couldn't have had, say, like a libertarian version of the West Wing TV show because it would have been really boring because everybody would walk into President Bartlett's office and say, here's a problem. What are you going to do about it? And he would say, well, we're going to like let an emergent process take care of it. You know, like, no, what you want is I am going to do this thing and it's going to be immediate and it's going to fix it right and there's there is a strong appeal to that sort of immediacy and and yes i think that markets are radically liberatory but that liberation happens through emergent processes that take they're not an overnight thing and 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 it requires a degree of trust in that process um i i think picking up on what Akiva said, I think the point about the left is not monolithic is really important. So just as like on the right, there is a world of difference between a David French and a Tucker Carlson, you know, like to, to the point where it doesn't, we, we would group them together on the right, but there's almost no meaningful overlap between their views. We might find a handful of issues, but right, they're they're incredibly distinct. And the same thing holds true for a on the left a a joe biden versus a marxist the right likes to accuse all the democrats of being marxists but marxists are deeply offended by that because they dislike the democrats as much as the right does you know uh, so there's there's this real there's a real diversity and i think oftentimes when we are saying like the left hates markets we're using this this particular version, like that, doesn't that is not very representative of like most people's on the left's views uh, to represent the whole case. That said, I think also picking up on something you said, Shika, about a sense of provincialism and kind of a lack of comparison between the institutions we have now and the alternatives. This was this is a really striking feature of. Both the radical left, but also just a lot of the left in general is a is a lack of knowledge of institutional comparison, like comparative institutional analysis and institutional history. Um I was struck for we have a little book club in the Reimagining Liberty Discord. And recently we read Mark Fisher's book Capitalist Realism, which is a a modern classic of, of Marxist thought. He was a British Marxist writer. Uh, and and it has all sorts of kind of fun Marxist cultural analysis of of what he terms late capitalism culture. But what really stands out in it is almost every time he identifies a problem in capitalist society, whether that's in power relations or in wealth disparities, or in control by different groups or whatever there's never a he never follows up with is this problem worse than it used to be was this did this problem exist in pre-capitalist societies does this problem, how does this problem compare to non-capitalist institutions? And in almost every instance of a problem that he raises, which they're often like genuine kinds of things that it would be better if they were ameliorated, i I could immediately think of, well, in this pre-capitalist society, people were talking about the exact same problem. So it's probably not caused by capitalism. or it seemed to have been a lot worse in societies that did away with markets. So, maybe capitalism has this problem but the all the alternatives that we've seen don't seem to be any better or are remarkably worse and that that kind of lack of looking into basically like institutional arrangement comparison or in contemporary issues like we we passed this policy whether it's so like minimum wage laws or we're going to have public sector unions or whatever it happens to be like kind of issues that the left is in favor of, did it actually work? Did it solve the problem that it set out to solve? Did things get better? Did they get worse? What sorts of new relationships of domination have been created? There's not a lot of effort is put into answering those questions. And, and as a result For a lot of of people on the left, the policies that they advocate for either historically have not actually made things better in a direction that they desire um, or have made things worse or the new policies they're advocating for don't appear that they would actually fix the problem. And so a lot of my frustration with people on the left is not the underlying values are wrong, but they're actually advocating things that are counterproductive from their own standpoint and it's it's out of this kind of lack of curiosity about comparisons
1: yeah uh you don't know- Uh, both of you have had a different intellectual evolution from mine. But the reason I was, you know, attracted more to sort of like the libertarian right was precisely because of that. You know, it just seemed to me that the policies that the, you know, liberal advocates were advocating would make things worse precisely on their, you know, on their own count. Uh, And so I've had to kind of like, you know, work my way back to where they are in uh, many instances. But just to, you know, like, uh, you know, just explore this question of why uh, the left is so against markets and capitalism. I think Just to, you know, give it its due a little bit, one reason is that the advent of the nation state, you know, sort of like the modern nation state, and the advent of capitalism went hand in hand. And, you know, Adam Smith, we are celebrating his 300th birth anniversary. I mean, he pointed this out, right? Mercantilism and the British, you know, government and the empire were very, very closely tied. And so in, I mean, you know, it would be an interesting, I'm sure somebody has written about this, whether, uh, you know, the this modern form of capitalism would have looked different if we also hadn't had the evolution of a nation state the way we see it. It may have looked much, much different if we had lived still back in the ancient, you know, city states instead of nation states. Um, that said, you know, the other, since we are talking about the relationship of the left with liberalism, the other thing that really bothers me about the left is is their rejection of liberalism on many counts, right? I mean, um, in their zeal, in their impatience for a you know what Akeva is talking about, like a utopia. Now they see and their and and what you said, Erin, that you know the state is such an attractive tool, right? I mean, it's immediate. You can use it. You can wield it. You can you know get results. And when you combine those two instincts you know, for using state power and a sort of certain moral zeal for results now, this impatience, you know, you see sort of like uh, the same kind of uh, illiberalism creeping in some sectors of the left, uh, which is troubling. Um, You know, I, I mean, I am so sick of like the both-sidedism uh i mean i'm not just sick of the hysteria of the right against the left but i'm also sick of sort of this both-sidedism that you know both sides are equally a problem um i mean i you know that's clearly not the case the le- the right is in a far worse place the all the, you know, the closest thing to an authoritarian we have seen in America comes from the right, and not just in America, everywhere in the world. And so, uh, you know, the right seems to me to be much more comfortable with state power than the left is. But on the other hand, um, you know, to the extent that uh, many of our progressive friends see things like, you know, free speech as just sort of like a tool of oppression or, um, you you know, um, sort of, you know, that all the liberal values, toleration as a tool uh, of, uh, you know, pushing the status quo. I mean, I think that's a problem. Um, And, um, you you know, in your interview with uh, Jillian, she herself acknowledged, right, that one of their biggest victories uh, in uh, for trans right came through, I forget the name of the case that she mentioned, Branstock uh, versus something or the other, in which a conservative Supreme Court, 6-3, ruled in favor uh, ag- or ruled against discrimination against a trans person because of their sexuality. So just the application of liberal tools can take us very far in ameliorating some of the you know, the injustices and the inequalities that we see these days. And so I wish they would have a little bit more faith in liberalism because the record of liberalism in achieving, you know, results is, you know, slow but not bad. Very good, in fact, I would say. So the, again,
2: the only, um, I think for a lot of people on the left and people on the right, there's this kind of dream that the only world we can accept is one in which everything that I want is fulfilled and in which society is oriented towards a kind of overall collective goal or purpose. Or if you want to be a fancy academic, they call it a telos. Um, and so for on the left, it's we can only accept a world in which society is fundamentally oriented towards reducing domination, increasing social justice, um getting rid of all of these unjust relationships for the right it's we can only accept a world in which there's you know like we're all practicing the same religion or we're all the same ethnic group or we all have the same kind of value, traditional values or something. Everyone needs to be marching kind of in lockstep in this kind of dream of uh, collective, um, in, in a kind of collective dream where we're all oriented towards the same things. And the structure of society is built on achieving those ends, whether they're these social justice ends or these more like traditionalist hierarchical ends. And I think one of the things that's fundamental to liberalism is the recognition that people have different ends that people want different things, that they care about different things, that they have different preferences. And because people are different, there's always going to be a tension between us because we have different stuff that we want to accomplish in life and that we think is valuable. And this is core to the idea of what, you know, this is a big thing for John Rawls and for Robert Nozick, this idea of separateness of persons, that each of us is an individual with our own understanding of the world and what matters. And so therefore, the only society that is justifiable is a society that can allow us to balance out the fact that we all have different goals and ends and purposes, um, and so that I think is a fundamental consideration of liberalism. It's also why tolerance is what basically created liberalism, um, and why the fight for religious and ethnic and social tolerance was what helped, what made liberalism emerge out of the feudal system of of Europe um, hundreds of years ago. And so I think recognizing that we live in a world of deep difference and deep pluralism, and in a world of scarcity and um, constraints on what we're able to accomplish, is what should orient us towards a more liberal society, rather than a society where we're trying to achieve some broad collective uh, identity.
0: Thank you for listening to Zooming In at the Unpopulist. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to review us in Apple Podcasts and also check out Reimagining Liberty, our sister podcast, The Unpopulist, where I explore the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. Zooming In is produced by Landry Ayers and is a project of The Unpopulist.